Welcome to the 2013 Louisville Arcade Expo panel discussion and interview with legendary pinball alumni Roger Sharp. This interview and discussion was hosted on Saturday, March 9th, 2013 during the proceedings of the Louisville Arcade Expo, hosted at the Ramada Plaza Hotel in Louisville, Kentucky. The panel was chaired by Jeremy Flights and Whitney Roberts. And without further ado, we bring you an afternoon with Roger Sharp. All right, my name is Jeremy Flights, uh, one of the organizers of the Louisville Arcade Expo. This is our third year. Uh, first off, I want to thank everybody for coming out here, especially all the people that brought the machines to make this possible. Um, when I, I just wanted to share just a, a little bit uh, about uh, this, this, the history of um, Roger Sharp to me. Um, my first pinball machine I got was a uh, sharpshooter in my sophomore year of high school. I picked that up locally as a, a project machine from Wincy Pinball on 7th Street. And um, the, uh, you know, with Roger Sharp on the back glass, you know, you always saw this, this you know, Roger Sharp. And I, didn't, I never knew that he looked almost identical in real person. Um, much, until, much older looking now, it's okay. <laughs> Until, uh, until we went to the Chicago Pinball Expo and I think it was 98. And, uh, and my brother and I were, we were walking around and, and then we saw, we saw Roger and it was like, wait, that's Roger Sharp. And we never knew that we could possibly meet a real pinball designer in person. And we just thought it was the, the coolest experience. So with our third year, we wanted to share that same type of, uh, the, the, the opportunity to actually have a real pinball designer um, at our show. It turns out that Roger is not just a pinball designer, but he has been everywhere that this show is all about, on the Congo side, on the arcade side, and the pinball side. So without further ado, Mr. Roger Sharp. Yep. Thank you. Uh, first off, I, I think uh, just share uh, a sense of uh, real appreciation, number one, for being here. Number two, for the job that uh, Jeremy, Matt, and Joe have done to, to put everything together. I mean, this is just spectacular, and if you guys don't mind, I'd give them a round of applause for what they've been able to do. For sure. Uh, there's no small task to uh, try to put an event together that uh, hopefully is going to resonate with collectors, enthusiasts, with people who are just kind of passing by, and maybe they'll drop in and uh, play a game or two, and. Maybe by playing a game or two, maybe I can get them uh, back in to play a game or two or three or four going forward, and maybe they'll even wind up buying one for their house at some point in time. <laughs> so these kinds of events, uh, I just really cherish. I think I think it's wonderful, and having been around for far too long, just seeing the 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 growth of all of these various events. Uh, again, I take my hat off to you guys for a third year. I'm I'm astounded. Uh, I think the facility itself is just wonderful, and uh, again all the equipment and everybody else and all the enthusiasm. Uh, so here, here. Thanks. Uh, and then okay, the thank you. <laughs> right. Oh. I'm out of here. <laughs> uh, the, the other person up here is uh, Whitney Roberts. He runs Broken Token, and he is kind of like our uh, historian, so to speak. Um, he, he does an awesome job with uh, documenting and uh, uh, doing Q&As and um, interviews and, and everything, and so it just makes perfect sense to have someone like Whitney up here. 
So, so what are four? Oh, sorry. Uh, oh no, I was just going to say I, I really appreciate it, and I'm admittedly I'm a relatively newcomer to the whole pinball scene, and I've done. Uh, you can ask my wife. I've jumped into this just head first, and. When I started doing a lot of research around this, when you asked me, it's like, Whitney, would you would you want to help you know, with a talk with Roger Sharp? I was like, my gosh, yes. <laughs> and I think I dropped everything, got on the keyboard, we started collaborating, hammering out questions. And you know, when, when you look at, especially just being here in Kentucky, being a local collector, there's not a lot of opportunities to meet the you know the luminaries of the industry, and this is this is it. So I, we we wanted to wanted to do it. So thank you. Um, okay, so what the format's going to be is uh, we have a set of questions, questions we came up with. Uh, one might not stick to the script. I don't know. Um, and, and, and if you all have any questions as well during the course of events, you know, please feel free to jump in. If I'm taking too long, just shut me down and say move on to the next question or whatever. So we'll, we'll keep it informal if that's okay. That's great. All right, cool. All right, cool. So. Uh, can you just give us a brief history of pinball according to Roger Sharp? Um, sure. Um, Bagatelle, for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, French uh, game. Uh, I know that uh, the late Dick Bouchel, great historian, uh, really took history much more, I won't say seriously, but much more in depth than I did with my pinball book, which I always thought was uh, more of a uh, touch point historically uh, trace things back to uh, ancient Egyptians and, and whatever else, but uh, truly it was Bagatelle. There's a picture that I have in my book, and I'm sure that you can see some things online with uh, Abraham Lincoln playing a uh, Bagatelle game. It was basically, I've always thought of it as a predecessor to pool, because it was, a, it was an external stick. It's like a pool table, and you're shooting balls and whatever else, uh, but uh, truthfully, the uh, First game ever patented, which uh, I actually own, uh, in 1871, was a game uh, patented by a fellow by the name of Montague Redgrave out of Cincinnati, Ohio, and it was called uh, Improvements in Bagatelles. And basically, all he did was bring it down to uh, how many of you guys have ever seen like 1930s games that are like countertop, tabletop? Somewhat familiar with it, most of you? Okay. That's about what the size was. Uh, no glass on it. Uh, it's interesting when you look at it. Scoring cups were like uh, pounded in metal. He had a plunger, and he had uh, a little piece of wood so that you could incline the game. I mean, all of these things back in 1871. Uh, kind of remarkable when you think about it. But uh, you then jump forward and not wanting to be too long-winded with the history. Uh, around 1930, 1929, in an outpouring of uh, different types of games, uh, a lot of uh, individuals not able to get work during the Depression. And we can get into some of them if you want, like Harry Williams, David Gottlieb, and others uh, who really carved out a niche and really helped create an entire industry. Um, but you had games like Log Cabin in the 1890s, uh, Wiffle Ball and, and some others in the late uh, 1920s. And then really the breakthrough game was uh, Baffle Ball that uh, D. Gottlieb and company built. Um, so 1930. Uh, what are they going to do in 32? Play Ballyhoo. That was uh, Bally's first game. They were actually a distributor for Gottlieb, and when Gottlieb couldn't provide games fast enough, uh, Bally started up his line manufacturing and started creating their own games. Uh, 
around 1932, you also have Harry Williams, uh, really seen as the Thomas Edison of pinball, uh, bringing out uh, a game with uh, a little solenoid, a little battery power, some sound, uh, tilt mechanism. I mean, the things that he did was really remarkable. So uh, that's, that's really kind of like the starting point. You went from games that uh, were, again, flat pieces of painted wood uh, to suddenly somebody putting a top box on it on the mid to late 1930s. 1937, the game uh, called Bumper uh, that uh, introduced a little kind of uh, solenoid action. Uh, I won't call it a jet bumper, I won't call it a pop bumper. Let's suffice it to say it was a little bumper thing, ball hit, <laughs> and it kind of moved around uh, to uh, really late 30s, early 40s. You had some one ball games and some others up until uh, 1947 with the introduction of the flipper. Harry Mabs and uh, Alvin Gottlieb working on that with Humpty Dumpty. And uh, the rest of it, as they say, is uh, more, more recent history. But that's, I mean, that's really kind of like, if you take a look and really kind of follow <coughs> where the games have gone, and, and even from this day going back, it really kind of uh, establishes a framework of where technology was at a given point in time. So whether it's sound, uh, whether it's lights, whether it's mechanical action, whatever it might be, whatever that available technology was and is, is what uh, pinball has always embraced. And I, and I think that uh, that's probably the, the best takeaway if you look at it historically. Uh, it's really tough these days, and I want to say maybe about 20, 30 years ago, you could go to a place like a pinball expo and you'd see people with old wood rails mm -hmm. from the 40s and 50s. Uh, you'd see fellows like Mark Wayna, who was a restorer and refurbisher of old games from the 1930s. Thank you, Mark, for having fixed four of mine. <laughs> uh, but you don't see those anymore. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what, what is uh, new for people are seeing games from the 60s and 70s. And I find it fascinating because there is an era, uh, I won't say it's forgotten, but it's not as plentiful and not as available for people to really have an appreciation of what those games provided. So. It's kind of like a snapshot of the history. I don't know if you want to touch on anything else historically. Or uh, that sounded good. I mean, uh, I really got that 1871 was the beginning of the Cincinnati <coughs> Park. Uh, yes, that's what. <coughs> that is, so. There you go, Larry and Phoebe. <laughs> well, Roger, one, one thing that uh, I think a lot of us would would always uh, would always really like to know is it, with with each of us having our own. I guess favorite type of machine, whether it be solid state or DMD, whether it be uh, EM or what have you, what have you. What's what's your favorite? Uh, what's your favorite class of machine and why? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean that, that, that was easy. <laughs> I, I think that uh, has a silver ball exactly. When I was when I was doing research on my uh, pinball book, uh, and that was a three-year endeavor, I had a chance to meet some collectors back then, and uh, many of them specialized in you know, older games, and I had a chance really to play a lot of the games from the 1930s. There was a fellow, and a name escapes me right now, but um, I know that I mentioned him in, in my book. Uh, he was based in Southern California, right outside LA, so bear with me for a second just for the setup, and hopefully you'll have an appreciation of what I'm going to reveal to you. And uh, I had heard about him through somebody else who was a collector. James Hamilton, who was a photographer on the book, and I kind of traveled around, not only the United States, but also uh, throughout Europe, taking pictures and, and, and whatever. And uh, so we go to this guy's place, and it's, uh, it's a factory. And he had been a collector and a restorer of uh, vintage cars. 
And if I tell you that the fact, I mean, for those who have ever been to like a pinball factory or whatever else, just magnify this like five times over with people working. It's kind of, it almost looked like an airplane hangar. <laughs> and he had outgrown his passion for doing antique cars, and instead what he started focusing on was restoring old pinball machines. Now, how many of you restore or fix pinball machines? Yeah. A fair number. Well, about the detail may not be exactly what you do, but uh, it fascinated me in terms of what he did. Uh, so, let's say some random game, 1932, uh, he would find out what kind of wood the cabinet was made of and then source out that wood so he could get the exact same wood. He would take chips of paint and go to whatever places and get the exact same, oh, I see a smile, okay, fine. Yep. Uh, down to the point of it absolutely being totally accurate. I'm talking about the wiring and everything else. If some housing, if some part of that game had been done in some fashion, he was going to replicate it down to the, the nail. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the former president of uh, Williams, Neil Nicastro, who was a Corvette enthusiast, and uh, he had the same kind of passion, the same kind of idiosyncratic behavior when it came to uh, any part for uh, any of his Corvettes. But uh, I remember playing a game in his collection. So see this factory, I'm just stunned because I'm looking at it and it's like, oh my god, and there's people. I mean, it's like an assembly line of different people working on different games. Uh, not for sale, this is just for his own collection. We go into his office, and his office is just populated with row upon row of, of games, all 1930s, some 1940 uh, one balls. And uh, one of the games I played was a game called, uh, I want to say it was like Flicker, And it had like a red rubber ball. Just remember that. And it was fascinating. I just thought it was just wonderful. So. From that era, yes, I have a uh, Mills official, which I love. Uh, it was a basis for uh, actually the last game I ever designed, the Muppets Haunted House Adventure. Uh, it never made it into production, but anyway, that was the basis of it. Um, 1960s games, well, when I was doing research for the book, and I guess it's held true for the past, Jesus. 30-some-odd years, uh, I have the good fortune to play every game ever manufactured from 1965 to the present day. So when wow. you ask, well, you get old, you know, you, you stay around long enough, and, you know, you get the good fortune. Hubert's Quest was a tough one. Uh, I was only able to find it when I went to Japan. So, uh, strange experience. So anyway, uh, 1960s uh, obvious, obviously have uh, a warm place in my heart. Um, Central Park Hurdy Gurdy, for those who know the Attaball versus the uh, replay version. Uh, Cowpoke and uh, Buckaroo. Uh, those are the two games that kind of uh, really meant something to me. It was why I got started on my quest to begin with. Uh, 1970s, God, you know, I mean, there's been so many, you know, good, strong games. I think I have an appreciation for all the games that have ever been made. I, I know that. You know, people will talk about something being a dog. Um, Python's not here, Gary Eisner's not here. Not a lot of people really enjoy Popeye. You know, not the best game in the world, <clears throat> a lot of flaws. But I've always felt that anybody creating something, there is an audience out there. 
could be an audience of one, yeah. could be an audience of one million. So, uh, you know, I, I think that I have fond memories, obviously, for the, the 12 and a half years I was at Williams, uh, you know, when we were still in pinball. Um, so they're, they're all enjoyable. Uh, you know, even my collection at home, there's games that I go back to somewhat frequently, maybe because they're still working or nothing's piled up on them <laughs> and I can get around them. So I don't know if that's a direct answer, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's favorites. Obviously with uh, Sharpshooter, uh, Skyfall, Free Jump was the inspiration for that. Uh, so that had uh, an obvious appeal to me, just having seven drop targets right in front of you. Uh, fortunately, in an angle, so it wasn't necessarily a total drain, uh, a la a lot of the Gottlieb games from the era of the 70s and early 80s, where games like Cleopatra had a four bank right in front of you, and it's like, okay, fine. Let me hit this so I can drain down the middle. <laughs> or for those who play target pool, it's always nice to try to go for that one lit target right in the center, forgetting about the, the numbers on the... Uh, stand-ups on the uh, outer edges. So, I don't know if that's the answer, but... That's good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you mentioned your uh, travels to Japan. I'm uh, kind of going away from the script. That's okay. <laughs> but uh, we, we, we were talking a little bit earlier, Wendy and I, and we were just wondering, uh, since you've gone all around the world, especially like even for your pinball book, you've, you've been around the world and just tried pinball, can can you just describe the is there, a, is there a difference as far as, uh, you know, like pinball in Germany, so to speak? Is Absolutely. It, or even like an expo in Germany or, or England or, you know, places like that? Yeah, I think the thing that, uh, look, uh, the pinball book, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, have ever seen it, uh, know anything about it. Uh, how many are familiar with the pinball book? Uh, a fair number, thank you. Uh, hopefully whatever copy you may or may not have didn't come from a library, but... I've, I've seen a few of those and have signed a few of them. Um, when we had the, the, the chance to, to go traveling around, uh, the part that fascinated me was, and you mentioned Germany, I'm, I don't speak German, and, and you're playing in, uh, you know, in a pub or something with some guy, and the universal language of pinball back then was, oh, uh, I said, I know, the red light, yes, yes. Um, Count Flipper was the term uh, in, uh, in, in Germany for, for pinball back then, and that uh, really meant, uh, I think it's battle or fight. So they saw it as a battle or a, or a fight. Uh, when I went to Spain, the thing that amazed me uh, was the, uh, the angle of the play field in the game. I mean, if they could have had double legs in the back, they would have had them. Every game was like at this kind of a slope because otherwise it seemed to be playing too slow for them. Um, which, have, right, have an appreciation. We're not talking about the same kind of power that we have in today's flippers. Go back to the 1970s. If you go back that far, play a game from the 1970s and imagine it being at a slope that's double. If it's at six and a half degrees, think of playing it at nine degrees and see if you can make a target at the top left part of the play field. Uh, you know, these guys were, were fanatics and crazy. Um, I think that the, the different styles of play, the things that everybody liked, there was an Italian bottom. Uh, there was a number of years. Uh, the largest distributor for ballet was uh, Nova Matica, uh, or Nova Operate, or whatever. Uh, Hans Rosenzweig, uh, really a patron of, of pinball, had some very definite views as to uh, what his preferences were for games. 
you'll, you'll go through an era of basically mid to late 70s uh, for Bally games where all the bottoms are going to be uh, return lanes down to the flipper. So the Spanish eyes approach that Williams wound up doing, for those who remember, it's a thumper bumper down in the bottom between the flippers, so you get a little bit of you know, action down there. Uh, there were designs of games, uh, Harlem Globetrotters being one, uh, a couple of others uh, that don't come instantly to mind, uh, where the designers were forced to change it because Hans said emphatically, I'll take two containers if you do it that way, or I'll take ten if you do it this way. And, you know, you're talking about multiple hundreds of machines with one of the primary markets for pinball back in that era. So everybody wound up basically going back, and an Italian bottom basically is what we see as a conventional bottom today. Just two return lanes down the flipper, that's what they liked. If you deviated from it in some way, shape, or form, like a sharpshooter does, you know, they probably would have had, uh, you know, crisis in the emergency rooms. Uh, so I, I think that everybody has their own level of peculiarities when it comes to whether it's here domestically or, or elsewhere. Uh, you know, uh, Haraguchi out of, uh, used to be with Data East out of Japan. You know, we've talked a lot and communicated a lot over the years in terms of, you know, what the environment is uh, in Japan for pinball these days. And, uh, you know, they're trying to keep the TPO organization going, which is the Tokyo Pinball uh, Organization. And, uh, you know, you do see some changes and you do see some games where they have, uh, an interest uh, in some style of game versus other styles of game, which maybe are not as appealing to them. So, don't know if that's the answer, but it, it's diverse to say the least. Roger, one of the things you'd mentioned is uh, in going to all these different countries where pinball was the, uh, I guess, a universal language. I'd say one of the things that probably attracts a lot of newcomers to the hobby is looking at the art that's on the pinball machines and looking at the back glass and the cabinet art and it I think that pulls us in just as much as the gameplay and I'll freely admit I've uh, I've wanted machines based upon what they look like sure. more so than what they played like so with that uh, who, who's your favorite pinball artist and outside of pinball who's your favorite artist just all up well uh, good question um, I admire the work of Dave Christensen. Okay. Uh, I, I think Dave really kind of broke through. Uh, I don't know if, if any of you are familiar with Dave and what he meant to pinball back in the early 70s, mid-70s, but uh, Bally was the first pinball company to actually have an in-house art department. Dave started doing uh, uh, schematic drawings for slot machines and then kind of moved over and has a certain irreverence. If you look at Nitro Ground Shaker, Captain Fantastic and others, uh, really very emblematic of, of Dave's style. Uh, I admire Paul Ferris and what he was able to do in his career, games like Paragon. Uh, Greg Ferris uh, has a soft spot in my heart. Uh, I think that he's just brilliant and whimsical. He kind of follows along, I think at least, personally, follows along what Roy Parker meant to pinball back in the 40s with a certain sense of, of humor. Um, it's just, you know, everybody brings their own kind of personality into play when it comes to, to the artwork. Uh, you know, Doug Watson worked on Barracora, uh, had a particular style. Um, Connie Mitchell, uh, the first in-house artist at Williams. Uh, if you take a look at games like Flash, 
from, from that time frame. Uh, Stellar Wars um, had a particular style. I think in terms of regular artists, God, I don't know. Um, I tend to be all over the lot, and I'm trying to think of some of the stuff that I have in my house. Uh, person that did some lithographs, uh, very realistic, Mark English, uh, kind of like a Roy Lichtenstein, but without all of the dots. Uh, <laughs> Vazzarelli. Uh, I mean, it's it's somewhat realistic. Uh, not so. Uh, my wife, um, hi Ellen, if you ever watch this, I'm going to mention you. <laughs> Uh, is, a, is a phenomenal artist. Uh, she's actually an art teacher. Uh, but uh, if you look at some of her work, uh, it really does, uh, you know, resonate. Uh, so, uh, yeah. But I think, I think to your point, more importantly, regardless of which artist or which art yeah. style it's that you may like, yeah. it's, it's a question of what hits you. That's and right. I've, I've always thought of pinball. And I guess I was the first person to really kind of pay attention to art when I started doing game reviews for uh, Playmeter back in 75, uh, and that was like the first game review person in the uh, industry trades. It's one of the trade magazines, and uh, I always thought that, uh, and part of my background is magazines, uh, I always thought that the pinball art, back glasses or whatever else, really kind of get the eye appeal. It's what draws you to a game. There's a particular color, uh, there's a particular theme or character, whether it's a license or not, really is a material. There's something that you gravitate to, and I, I think that uh, the artwork really sometimes helps a game. If you if you look back to some of the styles of uh, really some of the ballet games, even Chicago Coin, mm -hmm. games like yeah. Zigzag and and others from that era, Nip It, um, they're a little bit more I don't know uh, hubistic in their approach. Uh, it's not for everybody's taste, like a Capersville. Uh, it looks dark, it looks muddy, but for some people, it looks wonderful and fantastic, and that's something that they absolutely positively have to have, whether it's the game or, you know, the back glass itself or somebody doing a print of it. So I think that uh, it's really kind of a very subjective uh, element to pinball, but again, a very integral one. Yeah, it, it helps to make it personal, too, because you, you go after what appeals to you not on, on a lot of different levels. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. How's everybody doing? You guys hanging in there? You okay? Right. Yeah. Not boring yet? All right, good. <laughs> Thank God. Um, well, after you, you said uh, you were at Playmeter, Playmeter Magazine, uh, but I know you've also done uh, video game reviews and even wrote a couple uh, books on um, uh, computer programming and things like that. Can you, can you, tell, us, <laughs> can you tell us that side of, sure. of, of the story? Uh, for, for those who don't know, um, I used to be the managing editor of Gentleman's Quarterly Magazine, uh, which is how all of this kind of started uh, in terms of pinball and getting a chance to actually do a feature on pinball. Um, there was a point in time where I wound up leaving the magazine and uh, met up with a publisher who wanted to start a GQ type of magazine, and we sat down and we talked about that. And when he realized what it was going to cost in terms of manpower, and uh, in, in terms of just overall expense, he decided, is there anything else that you might want to do? <laughs> and I mentioned uh, about, this is 1982, 83. I got to give you the perspective. Jesus, 30 years ago, all right? Wow. Um, God, I was only six. 
The decades just fly by, don't they? That they do. Yeah, for some of us, quicker than others. Uh, anyway, um, I wanted to do a computer magazine. I wanted to do a magazine that ultimately became Easy Home Computer. At the time, there was Byte, PC Tech, Popular Computing. And for those who kind of go back to that era or have some familiarity with what I'll call ancient computer technology, um, there was really a void, I thought, to people just getting into it. You have to already have some predisposition, some familiarity with computers to really kind of relate to whatever the editorial subject was. So uh, I talked them into doing Easy Home Computer, which actually came before Family Computing, which was a publication that uh, Scholastic uh, wound up bringing out. And uh, this publisher, Chelo Publishing, uh, Pumpkin Press, actually had a wrestling magazine called Main Event, and he had a magazine called Video Games. So there was video games and there was electronic games. Electronic games. Uh, Arnie Katz, Joyce Worley, Bill Kunkel. Uh, hopefully there are some people in the audience. I know that I'm getting too deep into video that may be familiar with these folks, but I started doing uh, write-ups on coin-op games for Arnie, Joyce, and Bill. And, uh, Wound up getting involved with uh, Konami and Centuri for a track and field tournament that was going to take place in the United States. Top four players were going to be flown to Japan, which is how I got to Japan to play Hubert's Quest. But uh, Steve Bloom was the editor of Video Games Magazine, and I wound up taking that magazine over. So I was the editor for uh, Video Games Magazine for a couple of years, uh, and uh, was actually a consultant Way back when, this is far too much video, I'll stop in a minute, I'm sorry. Um, I was consulting to uh, Mattel when they were getting ready to launch the M Network, uh, and they wanted to do some licensing. Uh, and if you go back to the old uh, Mattel uh, electronics game system, uh, it was pretty remarkable in terms of what they were doing in 2K worth of space with color and depth dimensionality, it was actually much better than what was happening in CoinHop. Are you talking uh, about the television there? Yeah. That's the best console I've ever had. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you take a look at Sega Baseball, Sega Baseball was pretty good, or Atari Football, Trackball, those X's and O's. I mean, you know, everybody was not really into Raster graphics just yet, and here was Mattel knocking it out of the park. Uh, and then I also got called into Coleco, when they were getting ready to launch the Atom and uh, everything that I told them that they should do, they didn't do. And the rest, as they say, is history, but ColecoVision was uh, a pretty good system, too. So, yes. Very much so. My, my world has kind of overlapped uh, with video games, and I'll, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, actually, the reason why I ask that is because, you know, our show, it's, you know, it's, not a, it's not a pinball show. It's not an arcade show or a console show. And I just think, you know, when, when we were doing that walkthrough uh, yesterday and we got to the... Uh, the computer history room, and, and you just kind of lit up, and, and you, you know, I was just like, yeah, I don't know anything really in here. <laughs> I see some Apple IIs, and that's about it, and this is Karate Kid Holy Trail. And, uh, and you just went on and said, well, that's that, that's that, and it's like, whoa, that's... You really I, I think the thing that, uh, for those who know that, I have two sons, uh, Josh and Zach, who play a little bit of pinball every once in a while, and <laughs> do pretty good. Um, yes. I, I always told them, and maybe now, they're at an age, or maybe they'll never admit it to me 
anyway, I used to say how lucky they were to have a dad who was just a big kid. Yeah. We had all the video game systems. We had pinball, obviously, always. Uh, I'd always get a new TV <laughs> for the new video game system that we had. You know, one of the first kids on the block with the first Nintendo with Robbie the Robot or whatever he was called. Uh, you know, all the systems. And used to tell them, hey, these are my toys. <laughs> I'll let you play with them. So. I think it's important to note that statement that they're lucky to have a dad that's just a big kid. I'm going to mark that, and then I'm going to play that back to my daughter later on down the line. It's, it's, it, it hits home. Well, one, the, the next question I've got uh, for you, Roger, is so, someone along the same lines. If, if we were to look at, if we were to look at the time that you spent with the video game industry and documenting a lot of that, the pinball industry documenting a lot of that, and we all want to have something 30 years from now to have an expo to come to. So most people have a smartphone, they have a tablet, or they play games online. What, what, what's going to be the draw 30 years from now? What's going to keep pinball, uh, art, classic arcades, what have you, primarily pinball, what's going to keep it relevant for the next 30 years? I think what it is today. I mean, I don't care how young or old. If we go outside that door, we're going to see a lot of small children. Yep who were just amazed the way that I was the first time I ever played a pinball machine. Uh, you know, five years old, lights, standing on the orange crate, and not knowing what the heck I was doing, but just having a blast because there were sounds, and there were flashing lights, and damn, I'm, I'm actually hitting some buttons, and there's something moving on the play field. Uh, I've been asked the question a lot over the years, or at least over the past, you know, 12 or 13 since William shut down, you know, um, is pinball still viable? And uh, I'll, I'll give you the answer that I've given all the time. Until somebody, and this is for me personally, so I, I need to state that. Until somebody creates for me personally something that replicates the same tactile, totally interactive, totally immersive uh, experience as a pinball machine does for me, pinball's going to stay there. Uh, I, I think that the biggest challenge that pinball has, and has always had, uh, at least in the past 40 or 50 years, it's a mechanical device. Unless it's maintained, and I don't know how many of you out there are operators, but the problem that you have is, and I'll use uh, the example of the, the newspaper story the other day in the Louisville paper. You know, somebody kind of sees that randomly. Wow, there's this expo, pinball, whatever else. And they come out here, and thank God about 99.9% .9 of all the games are working mm -hmm. and functioning, which is great. What is the biggest fear is that when they go back and tell their friends that they went to this incredible event, and next year you've got to come back because you're never going to believe what we just experienced with the family. If they wind up going to some family entertainment center, bowling center, whatever, that has a pinball machine, and that pinball machine isn't functioning, they kind of walk away saying, well, maybe not. And, and I've always been uh, much of a hard case when it comes to location owners and operators in terms of really maintaining their equipment. I've always thought of it much more simplistically at some point in time you gotta put gas in your car, otherwise it's not gonna run. You know, sometimes you got to check the oil. 
Uh, if for no other reason you want to keep basic transportation, but ideally you want to keep your resale value up so that you know at some point after 10, 15, 20 years, you may want to turn it in and try to get another car. And I think that uh, far too often in, in the coin-op industry, people think of the equipment as being disposable. And they don't maintain it. They don't take care of it. And uh, we fall victim to it as fans who want people to have a wonderful experience each and every time. Let's face it. If you go to the movie theater and the sound system doesn't work and the popcorn's terrible, yeah. uh, there's always another movie theater somewhere down and around in the neighborhood. If your friends tell you about a great restaurant, you go, but that night the chef is sick and you have the worst meal that you've ever had, you're probably reluctant to go back there again. The same problem exists for, for pinball and for video games. Mm -hmm. You know, upright video games have a very tough time these days. Unless it's a sit-down driver or a shooter like a big buck hunter, uh, it's really tough to get, whether it's a Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat or NBA Jam or something else as a conventional upright video game, uh, because you are competing yes. with all the other forms of entertainment. So I think that the key ingredient, and I guess video games, if you go to, you know, if there's David Busters around or Chuck E. Cheese or again, Family Entertainment Center, uh, it's the bigger games. The part that I find fascinating, and, and we'll look at it from the standpoint uh, the iPad and all the smartphone games and everything else is everybody's going back to basics. Uh, all the retro arcades or barcades that are being built, let's go out and play Lunar Lantern. Let's go do Donkey Kong. I mean, people are discovering games that are classics and treasures. And I, I think that there's something to be said for the purity of the video games from the early 1980s on through to today, where you have massive adventures and whatever else. So I think the simplification is really kind of paying an homage to uh, what is right with video games. And with pinball, hopefully we'll call it a more simplistic approach to what design is going on today. And again, the most formidable challenge is having games that function. Yeah. So is it going to change? I hope not. I think that as long as somebody has games in their basement, in their rec room, in their family room, as long as it's being bequeathed to somebody else in the family, as long as somebody gets a chance to touch and play that, uh, it's going to still be out there. It may not be out there to the level that any of us might want it to be. I don't think it's going to disappear. Of course, I'm sure that there's some guy who was making buggy whips back in the turn of the century who thought that people would still be doing horse-drawn carriages. And maybe uh, a great-great-uncle now is doing it on behalf of harness racing. I don't know, but uh, anyway. Um, I thought we would uh, switch over to the, uh, to the legal side of things. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> great, great question. The, uh, back in 1976 with the testimony that you did in New York, um, front of the New York City Council, uh, you had to demonstrate that pinball is a game of skill and not a game of chance. Yes. Yep. Uh, yes. I cannot imagine the pressure, but what do you think would happen, or how? what would be different in pinball today, if there would be, if you just did not make the shot? Um, I think everything would have been different. My, my life, admittedly, would have been different uh, if I had never even done a pinball book. Um, 
So I, I have uh, a gratitude to Mayor Fiero LaGuardia for outlawing pinball because I want the pinball machine. Um, I've thought about that. Nobody's ever asked a question before, by the way. Uh, I don't think that pinball would have thrived to the extent that it did. Uh, Los Angeles had opened in 1972, so that predated my involvement. I got started with all of this crazy stuff in 1974. Uh, but when New York kind of changed their ruling, so did Chicago. And I think if you take a look at two major metropolitan areas, uh, not having pinball, you're looking even back then at about 4 million people not having accessibility to it. And I think it would have been something that, oh, we play that when we go down to the Jersey Shore, or we go up to Connecticut, or we go up to the Dells in Wisconsin, uh, or we go down to the Dunes in Indiana. I mean, whatever it is, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been part and parcel to, um, I guess, leisure time entertainment options. So I am, uh, I'm deeply grateful, very humbled by the fact that I was able to have uh, the influence that I did have that I think was positive for pinball. The, uh, and with that, um, I mean, pinball was illegal in New York, so that even means private collector couldn't even have a pinball machine at the time. No, 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 private collectors could, and there was a place, there was like a head shop, record shop in the village where I used to go play. So you had places, I'm sure up in Harlem, uh, for those who were willing to venture there, uh, you could find almost anything. But, uh, no, it wasn't, uh, Oh, I heard a laugh. Somebody was familiar with that part of town. Um, no, it wasn't. It wasn't a question of you not being able to have it privately. You just couldn't have it out commercially for uh, for anybody to, to play. And and just mentioning about the the, the testimony, uh, I actually wasn't nervous. Uh, at one time, I was actually a pretty good player. Uh, some people thought I was the best player in the world, so I won't disagree with that. Um, when I heard I was going to get a chance to play, for me it was just a question of showing off. So uh, I think I was more concerned with the courtroom setting. Uh, I tend to be somewhat claustrophobic, which is why I have not, have not done a lot of these talks over the years. Uh, I'm comfortable, so it's okay. Uh, right now, we can speak closer. When when I saw the courtroom. Proud it was, and the fact that I was going to be sitting there yeah. for God only knows how much time. Um, Rufus King was the attorney for the industry. He was a primary counsel for both uh, D. Gottlieb and Williams. And, and Rufus, if you go back historically, actually was uh, the lead attorney on the Corpan case in 1956, which differentiated payout pinballs from amusement pinballs. So for those who are collectors or you've looked at old 1950s and 60s Gottlieb games, you'll see on the bottom, usually it's the bottom arch or it's actually on the back glass, uh, you'll see for amusement only. Uh, and that was a big differentiation. You had a lot of one balls in the south, a lot of bingos uh, where people were giving away money. And uh, that was a, a big and, and bitter fight. So uh, Rufus came over and said, it's easy, you know all the stuff. Ask you some questions, you play a game. You'll be fine. And it's like, okay, fine. So uh, yeah, uh, it, 
testifying in uh, actually a Columbus, Ohio uh, case. All right, to show you how, how stupid things were and how much time has changed, um, the Assistant Attorney General in Columbus, Ohio had a ban on pinball, um, in a courtroom, testifying, big burly guy, and I just remember, um, most of you know how much a pinball machine weighs. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's something that, you know, depending on how strong you might be, you usually need at least two people to move it. Somebody in the front, somebody in the back. It's not something that necessarily a Hulk Hogan or a Dwayne Johnson is going to be able to lift up on their own just because of the disparity of where the weight is. Uh, so we're talking about the game being skill-based and all the rest of it. I did not play. There was a pinball machine in the courtroom and I was there on behalf of Valley. Uh, and this is after New York. And this guy lifts up the game, had big black shoes on, puts the uh, front uh, legs on top of his shoes so the game is like this. What's going to keep people from playing it like this? And to cheat the game. I mean, to win free games or whatever else. I, I was dumbfounded. It was just like, Number one, you have large black shoes. <laughs> Obviously, it's not hurting you. Um, I can't do that. I, I don't have the ability. And small children aren't going to be able to do that either. Um, I actually have a copy of that testimony somewhere in my files, but uh, they wound up knocking out my testimony. I think I pissed them off. So it was like, <laughs> but it was, just, it was just strange to me because everybody was always looking for some way to put a knock on, on pinball. And um, again, not wanting to go too far off base here. Um, but for video games as well, when video games first came out, uh, the, Phil Donahue used to have a show that was replaced by Oprah and whatever mm -hmm. else. It's a fairly popular show. And there was a gal, and I forget where she was from, I remember the name, um, who headed up the PTA and became the spokesperson against video games. Her name was Ronnie Lamb. And Ronnie Lamb got a heck of a lot of press talking about video games. And come on, we're talking about not shooters or anything else. Although Death Race was out at that point in time, which didn't help the cause. <laughs> but you know, games like Pac-Man and, and, and some of the other games from that time frame, Space Invaders. Um, and she was saying that you know we're, we're creating a society of you know drones, not the term that we necessarily think of today when yeah. we mention drones but antisocial behavior and all the rest of it. And I, I think the fear has always been, and for those who are parents, maybe you can appreciate this even more. I think the fear is when we see young children growing up and we remember what we did when we were younger and it's like, God forbid they should do any of the same stuff. So uh, I think the games have always been a ready target. And we're, we're seeing it even today yes, in terms of iPad games and all of the tragedies that are happening and people are talking about Sandy the Bay. fact that, uh, you know, they're at home honing their skills so they can go out and, you know, destroy humanity. And I think that, uh, you know, it's a shame that society needs to figure more as opposed to people taking personal responsibility for themselves and for their children and neighbors and whatever else. But sorry to pontificate for a minute, but I just... I find it fascinating that, you know, what we think of as being innocent entertainment scares people, that they don't understand, they don't get it. That there's something that has to be terribly wrong with us, that we have some affliction because why are you playing pinball? You know, you're a grown-up person, you know, 
you should be doing something better with your time. <laughs> and it's like, dear, I'll take out the garbage later. Let me just finish this game. So, anyway. Do you hear that, Nelson? I think we'd all just love to play pinball for <laughs> and get paid. It'd be great. I, Roger, just curious, uh, you'd mentioned a little bit earlier uh, in this talk that you had the opportunity to play uh, most, if not every game from 65 to present. So, so the, I'm sure that, that that means that your collection is what you want it to be. Okay, it's, it, it is, it's, it's honed to the point where it, it's exactly what you want it to be. But that being said, what title has eluded you over all the years that you just haven't been able to get? Uh, I, I wish that my collection was as big as I would like it to be. <laughs> um, I've surpassed what my wife's comfort level is. Uh, yeah, me too. Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's a number of games that I'd love to have. Uh, I'm different than uh, both of my sons. Uh, I will never sell any of my games. And they have sold and traded and whatever else. And it's like, you got rid of that one? Really? Why? Well, Why? Because I got this now. But that was a nice one. Huh. Um, one of the games that eluded me uh, that I would love to have, uh, I was supposed to get one, but uh, instead it went to somebody else who was Indiana Jones. Uh, put in a lot of time on that one. Uh, my, my nephew and uh, some of his friends were great in getting me a Star Wars Episode One, uh, which I was supposed to have and never had. So that became part of the collection. Um, I was also able to get, uh, in, in a somewhat circuitous way, it was supposed to be my game. Somebody else at Williams got it, and I wanted to get it from them, which was the uh, next generation. But um, Paragon, always loved the game, was always frustrated by it. If you see my score, you'll see that I am speaking the truth. Um, loved the artwork, I thought it was just, you know, just a spectacular game. Look, I, I have 25 games. And I have four one twos. Um, I could easily double or triple that, and it wouldn't be just a question of having a larger collection. It would just be me having a chance to play yeah. uh, a broader, diverse amount of games. I've, I've always been dumbfounded with some folks who are in nameless that have you know, three, four, five, six hundred games. Do you, yeah. you play them all? Oh no, no. But I have six that I play. The others are just standing up on their heads, and it's like, damn, I mean, what good is that? So, um, yeah, so I mean, and games from other areas that I'd like to have. Um, so, yeah. That's good. Um, of all the titles that you've worked on in your career, uh, like you mentioned episode one, Indiana Jones, uh, what, what is your favorite one that you've worked on and why? Favorite license? Favorite, or a favorite game. That's a favorite game. Yeah. Well, why not both? Yeah. yeah. Favorite game has to be Sharpshooter, obviously. It's the yeah. first one. Um, if they have the chance to actually design a game. Look, I, I came to the industry differently than maybe, or we'll call it a hobby. Differently than I think anybody else. Um, I grew up in Chicago, so I grew up pinball deprived. Um, there was a a train station, Illinois Central. Uh, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. 
And if I go downtown to the library, which has now changed to a different location, uh, and then in the train station there was a game room and uh, there were a couple of uh, arcade games, not pinball really, but kind of like pinball. Those I used to play like all the time religiously. Uh, I have an older sister, uh, and after uh, having encountered pinball when I was about five or six in California for the first time, uh, we'd go down to Champaign, which was the University of Illinois, so it's like a mom's day weekend, dad's day weekend, and have lunch, have ball machine, play pinball, and you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a part of my life. So, um, when I went to, to the University of Wisconsin, that's where I really first discovered pinball and started playing it. So, I didn't have an uncle or an aunt or a cousin or a nephew or somebody working in the industry. Either, you know, on the assembly line at a factory or somebody who operated games. There were no games to me. So, you know, all of what I've been able to achieve came out of the fact of sheer and total ignorance. So again, the chance to be able to have a question asked, if you could design a game, what would it be? Yeah. 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 All right, these circles, these are bumpers. <laughs> this is targets. Here, uh, to a fellow that had a Lee Goldoss game plan. And, uh, he said, well, you know, and, and I told him, I said, so after I did that, I said, yeah, but it'd be too expensive. And he called in one of the great mechanical engineer, uh, and showed Wendell the piece of paper. And he looked up and he said, too expensive. And I said, see? And then Lee uh, asked me the question that kind of changed the course of my life a little bit, and most definitely did for game plan. Would it be successful? And I said, if I know anything about pinball, and this is like 1977, 78, so I've been around now for a few years, already done some stuff. And I said, yeah, it would be. He said, all right, let's do it. So, yeah, I'm in a special place in my heart with that one. Um, the licenses, God. First one that I got a chance to work on, Cassandra Peterson, was, was wonderful. Uh, Dennis did a great job. Uh, Greg did phenomenal artwork on Party Monsters. Um, but, I mean, there were others. It was uh, T2, uh, being able to work with James Cameron and Schwarzenegger. Um, Indiana Jones, being able to go out to the ranch uh, at Lucas and work with those folks. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's been some, some good memories, I guess. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah it is. You, you it's structured, I mean, it wasn't even uh, just the game that you designed, correct me if wrong, but you also did all the promotional flyers. And yes, I did. Too. Yeah, I, I absolutely had a hand. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. We had a uh, teaser in the trades. Um, that was a, uh, it was a red page, and it said, uh, I think Sharpshooter's coming, they're coming soon, or whatever else, or whatever. Some kind of tagline. I did the brochure. Yeah, it's just a mustache. Yes, thank you. Um, I have the t-shirts for that. Um, did a, uh, a four-sided, two-page uh, brochure uh, for it. Yeah. Uh, Cyclops, uh, there's actually a layout that I have, thumbnail, uh, that was never produced. But, uh, yeah, I mean, 
I knew exactly what I wanted, component by component. I went through it with Wendell and the late Joe Juice, and I wanted, you know, Gomby flippers because they were the best and the most accurate flipper. I wanted a, a good, solid belly spinner uh, because the Gomby spinners tended to hang up. Uh, God forbid I did not want belly drop targets because they didn't drop. <laughs> uh, so Williams drop targets were good. Uh, so again, it was component by component. The sounds, I knew all the sounds, and my dear, dear friend Steve Epstein, uh, owner of the world-famous Broadway Arcade, and uh, my co-founder of Papa way back when, uh, came up with the, uh, I, for whatever reason, I blanked out on the uh, spinner. I knew I wanted a dynamite explosion and, and some other stuff that wound up being uh, part of the game. It's called Galloping Hooks. Yes, Galloping Hooks. Okay, fine. So, uh, and even to the point that I know that I drove George Malenna crazy. Uh, if you look at Sharpshooter, a lot of people think because it tends to be the way the pinball is done. In my case, it wasn't. Everybody thinks that I'm the guy that's being shot on the play field. <laughs> nope. If you take a look at the game, when you get a chance, it is literally one picture in a different perspective. I've just fired on him. He's falling back. If you look at the plastics, there's two horses that are reared up, all facing that way. So what I wanted was a single image from top to bottom and everything else to weave in. There was a game that uh, Harry Williams had designed for Stern back then called Dracula. Not the Dracula that most of you know. Okay. This Dracula had a plentitude of colors, bizarre, strange colors. And I told George I wanted this to be not necessarily black and white. That's a whole other story of what I wound up influencing for Centaur. I, I didn't want it to have like colors that were not in keeping with that era. So we talked about red brick. Yes, they did do some greens. There wasn't going to be any purples or anything else. So tonally, we went through that. And then my wife was working in an ad agency at the time. And I knew what I wanted the band glass to be. And, uh, I had uh, the lead artist of the ad agency kind of do up a sketch and sent it out to George. George came back. I still have a Polaroid somewhere. The, I don't know, how many of you remember a, a TV character by the name of Hopalong Cassidy? Yeah, I know. Far less hands, it's okay. If you ever watch MeTV or one of the old ones, you may wind up catching it, but uh, and it's a black and white show. He had me in a big white hat and what I will call generously blue striped pajamas. And it was like, no, 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 no. And I wound up dressing up. I remember standing in the hallway of my apartment in New York City, and somebody taking a Polaroid that I could send out to George saying, no, this is how I want to look. So, um, again, uh, I guess, uh, yeah, one of my favorites. If that was a question, I forget. Uh, was I close? <laughs> I don't forget. I'm <laughs> Uh, Roger, I'm kind of curious. Uh, you mentioned the phrase "too expensive" a couple of times in, in, in a prior answer, and I think that that probably resonates with a lot of the designers today. And that's the reason why we see uh, the, the, the pro models of today, the LE models of today, and and, and things like that. 
when, when you were doing your design work, what, what's, what's the number one item that you got told was too expensive that you still wanted to be in the game that just never made it into a game? Oh, God, that never made it into a game. I know I have problems on Barracora. I wanted to do resettable drop targets. Okay. Uh, you know, that's, a, that's an expense. There was a game called uh, Toledo, I think, that Williams had done previously, so I knew that they had the mechanism. Uh, on Cyclops, I know I wanted drops and stand-ups because I wanted to have a game that had some depth to it. That was an expense. Uh, you know, it's a question of time frame and error. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's the number of switches. It's what actually fits on a play field. Uh, I know that Gary Stern had been very vocal a number of years back on, you know, keeping it simple, one mechanical device and so on. Um, I think it's a question of, you know, how much can you not necessarily fit in, but what works geometrically in the physical space and what really works in terms of the items that you have that are eye candy versus the items that are the interactive components and doesn't make for a fun experience. So, cost is a factor. Yeah. You know, for, for a number of years, Pinball Expo used to have a seminar. It used to be like, hi, we're all going to design a game now. So what would we like? You know, and you get uh, 12 jet bumpers, uh, 28 flippers. And, you know, and, and a number of years back, when Joe Kamikai was still at Stern, they wound up building uh, a game, I forget what it was called. I don't think it was Baby in the Hole, which was for uh, one of Rome's favorite people that I can think of right now. Uh, but they wound up building this game that you couldn't play. Harvey Harvey Nice, thank you. Uh, Stern came out with a game, and it was a pinball expo, whatever year it was, and the next year there it was. You really couldn't play it because it was populated with stuff. All he did was take things out of the parts department, dump them all on a play field, and said, here, here's your game. This yeah. is the one that you wanted. I think we called it Monopoly or something. Here, <laughs> here it is. And it's like, see, it doesn't make sense. So some of it's, you know, actually economics, mm -hmm. and some of it is just, you know, what's practical. Yeah, understood. Thank you. Is everybody doing okay still? Have we taken too long, or you want to keep on going? Yeah? All right. Excellent. Nobody's falling asleep yet? Okay, good. I just wanted to ask. I mean, you know. Can I go to sleep? <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> um, companies like uh, Valley Williams, uh, Stern, Chicago Point, um, they all had a hand in shaping pinball, uh, how we know. And, uh, I mean, and even designers, but is there any, is there any unsung hero of the companies um, that, that helped shape pinball that we know today? Yeah, and, and this, this would be interesting to know if it's somebody that nobody would ever know, but in, in through your years, who, who is that unsung hero? Uh, I think that uh, a lot of it is the mechanical guys. You know, for anybody who knows Pat Lawler, Pat is always sworn by what John Crutch has done. trying to remember his name, I'm so sorry, uh, Carl Biaggi, just an incredible mechanical guy that worked with Steve Ritchie. Uh, you'll see uh, Carl if you play uh, Star Trek Next Generation, uh, he's one of the folks that comes up uh, when you're locking a ball. Uh, Joe Juice, uh, fantastic, he read, actually salvaged sharpshooter for me. Um, Great mechanical guy and uh, a great designer uh, during a point in time when uh, games like Sea Witch 
and Viper and others uh, were being produced by Stern. Uh, a lot of games that were somewhat, you know, funky in design and layout, but for some reasons really kind of work. Uh, so I think it's more the mechanical guys that really kind of stand out. They were like the bread and butter uh, for any of the companies, even today, if you really look at it. Taking nothing away from the core designers that all of you are familiar with, or some of you are not familiar with, but at least you see their work. And you know that you have an appreciation for a Steve Ritchie or a Dennis Nordman or a George Gomez or a John Board. Exactly. But it's really the guys that are kind of working on the line. It's kind of like, I don't know how many of you are really fans of NASCAR. Probably not too many because you're in the South here. Uh, but uh, it's the crew. And I think that Dale Jr. Or, or any of the other drivers would be the first ones to say, yeah, I'm not. I drive and I breathe and I know exactly what I'm doing, but without my crew doing pit stops in a timely fashion, making sure that the car is really tuned and tweaked, understanding everything from tire pressure on through, uh, they know who to acknowledge. And I think that that's the case with, with pinball and even for video games. Any questions? So far from you guys that we haven't covered yet? I didn't want to disrupt. Oh, no, no, that's fine. that's fine. I see a hand. Yes. What kind of good critique could you give them? <laughs> that I haven't already given them? I did not. I have not played it here yet. Uh, I do know that it's now on three ball. I've had the great opportunity to play it as a two ball game on a couple of occasions. Um, I did not notice. Did you have you played it yet? I played it like two or three times. All right. So I have a question for you. Top right flipper, uh, is there's a magnet just above it. Are they stopping the ball and giving you a speech call? I see a head shaking in the back behind you. Well, that hasn't happened then. Uh, <coughs> I, look, and I know this is on tape, and I know I'll get hammered, and Josh and Zach, <laughs> Josh and Zach are gonna tell me, oh my God, what did you do? Let me be nice. Yeah. And we can always delete that part too. Okay. So. <laughs> just, just to be, how many of you have bought Wizard of Oz? All right. Excellent. Um, previously, it was a nice plain white wood that had some good color. Um, you just shot it around. The rule set wasn't defined yet. Um, what we think of as being enhancements in the game, speech, music, lights, really are instructional and directional. If they're not there, then I don't know what I'm going for. All right, I've spelled haunted, okay, I've spelled rainbow. I'm going over these rollover switches and I have three letters into lion. What does any of that mean? I'm waiting for the choreography of the game. So, and there are some things, and, and it was one of the points that I, I told the guys. Uh, you have a magnet, you have a blind shot that goes up and around. For those who have had a chance to play the game, you have a top right flipper. A top right flipper feed, I'm supposed to either go for, and I just do this off of memory, so I apologize. Um, you're either going for the Wicked Witch to drop down mm -hmm. that target. I'm either trying to make it into the Jets, 
Or if I can do some kind of a short, quick loop around, fine. And if I can really do it at an obtuse angle, maybe I can go up for the kick out hole to get me to the top left play field. I know that because I've played it. I tend to think of the average person going up who doesn't know how to follow the ball, and even for me having knowledge of the ball going around, I can't time that because it's a blind spot. Anytime you lose sight of the ball, it's really, really tough in a pinball. Forget about lighting, if it's too dark, if there's too many lights flashing, and I have some problems with some of the LEDs that people put in the games, and everything is flashing simultaneously, it's blinding. Um, so the one point that I made was, this is, in quotes, a critical shot. Because if I go all the way around and I miss the right flipper, where is it going? It's going right down back to the bottom flippers. And if you look at the angle, it's going to go down between them. And an up post means nothing, that center post. That's just to frustrate people. Uh, so I said, you have a magnet there. There's a game called Roller Games. Use that as a reference point because I told Steve Ritchie, I'm never going to be able to make the shot. Put a magnet. Stop it, and we have a speech call. Flip, flip. <laughs> Go for the wall, thank you. You got it. So they have a perfect opportunity to implement something like that. I know the game is still a work in progress. Uh, the game, and it's not, a, it's not a critique, just an observation. The game right now is what I would call very much a horizontal, vertical game, sorry. It's up and down. So my primary shots are from the bottom flipper up the center. There's not a lot of stuff that I'm doing on either side. Um, it's a fun game. There seems to be some nice balances and stuff. They know that I totally dislike the placement of the lower jet bumper outside the play field, trying to tell me that yes, but you can every once in a while nudge it back up and it's like you're talking to somebody who's one of my signatures is a thumper bumper in the lower part of a play field. Uh, if somebody has that on a location and the tilt mechanism is real tight, guess what? I'm not going to be able to shake it out. Uh, so for me, it's somewhat kind of a forgettable, regrettable part of the game where if they had raised it up, I think that it would have been implemented and a lot better and it would have been a lot more fun. So uh, all in all, I think it's been an incredible and courageous endeavor for Jersey Jack. Um, I'm hoping that when all is said and done, and for you who have bought the game, that Chris will get in all of the music and all the speech, and that Keith and now Ted Estes coming in uh, will be able to finish up a rule set that is going to really make sense for the game. Don't know if that answered the question. It's funny you ask that because we have that almost, <laughs> almost verbatim. Yeah. Well, in, in, in it's one, a shill in the audience. <laughs> no. You have one of these sheets. <laughs> one, one thing I'd like to add to that question, though, if I, if I could, is that I, I know that we all appreciate what Jersey Jack is doing. We, we all love what Stern has done. But on top of that, is there room for a third? Is there room for a fourth? It would, do you think the industry would, would support another Jersey Jack? 
I guess you have to ask Andrew Highway. You have to ask Kevin Cooler. You have to ask John Papaduke. You have to ask um, Ben Heckendorf. Mm -hmm. um, you have to ask Mars Clay out of Spain, who actually had a factory and are up and running and building their games. I think, what is it, Canasta 21 or something is the current machine? Is there room in the industry? Um, there was a point in time, uh, back in prehistory, uh, when I was doing reviews for Playmeter and I was at an AMOA convention. That was the major trade show for the industry. And there were uh, 12 different companies featuring pinball. Okay. Raycell, Playmatic, Interflip, the list kind of goes on and on, as well as the majors. Is there room in the industry for more than one? I think that, uh, with all due respect to, to Gary, I think he's upped his game because of Jack. Yes. I think when you are a lone company in any industry, um, there isn't necessarily a lot of motivation to do anything different. If you have everything kind of like locked down, why bother? Um, it doesn't mean that you are regressing it doesn't mean that you are not doing anything to advance the type of product that you're creating. It just means that maybe there's not as much of a sense of urgency to innovate. Um, I find it interesting, and this is just a personal observation, and maybe it answers the question. Mm -hmm. If you go back to the early 1930s, even if you take a look at the glossary for those who have a chance to look at the book, had to be like 30, 40, 50 different companies producing pin games. I think of that as being the case now. You have these you know, folks that are jumping in right now with both feet. Mm -hmm. And whether they're going to produce 10 or 3, a la Lonelli, uh, yeah. that uh, Dennis and Greg did as a limited edition, um, whether they're going to do a couple of hundred. Uh, as full throttle sounds like it may be uh, from Andrew uh, or the P3 one that Jerry's working on. I mean, everybody's working on stuff. Yeah. It almost makes you believe that there's an appetite and an interest and a curiosity about something called a pinball machine. Uh, do I think that everybody can survive? I think it's a question of whatever the expectations are. Yeah. And I go back to the fundamental, and this will never ever change. Once a game is out in location, will it be maintained? Bless you. If it's maintained and it performs and people enjoy it and that person takes care of it, hence it actually retains and increases in value, then yeah, pinball is going to be around for, for everybody to, to enjoy. Come on, I mean, how much does it cost now to get it used, hopefully in great condition, medieval madness? <laughs> Lots. I mean, you know, if you're lucky to get it in the low five figures, you got a bargain for a game that was four grand brand new. How many years ago now? I mean, it's crazy to me. It really is. It's kind of like buying, you know, a Picasso or a Rembrandt, hanging it up in the house and saying, this is my investment for the grandchildren. Uh, you know, pinball has that kind of ability. Uh, to improve in value if it has been taken care of. So, again, I think to the point and the question about other companies, um, yeah, I think everybody has a legitimate shot. It's a question of do they overreach the mark and have higher expectations? Is the price point going to be right? Mechanical reliability. 
parts. I mean, there's all of these different factors that are going to come into play that are either going to impede somebody being successful or not. In the case of Jack, how many parts does a distributor have to have? You know, there's a big capital investment when you wind up supporting a product line because you can't just take something off the shelf that fits in a Stern game or an old Williams part necessarily, taking nothing away from what Planetary Pinball has been able to do and what Jack's incorporated, and just say, okay, I'm gonna take this uh, flipper from Cactus Canyon and put it on, and it won't be ruby red slippers, but it'll be a flipper. No, I mean, it has to be the parts, so. Yes? Yes, uh, this, this touch Oh, I got you next, yeah. This touches on an earlier uh, answer. Uh, it's about it's about the popularity of pinballs. Do you think uh, with the explosion of old devices, there's a you know for example there's a game called uh, Pinball Arcade by Farside Studios. Really? And they, yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm kind of familiar with <laughs> them. Uh, they've done they've done so well that they had two you know Kickstarter projects to get. Zone yeah, that's crazy to me as well, but it's not as crazy as... Do you, do you see this as, as you know, something, uh, the mobile gaming, the, pin, the pinball, pinball games specifically, uh, helping with the research of pinballs in general, pinball machines? Sure. Look, my, my daytime job, I work at WMS Gaming. We do slot machines. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, for anybody that's ever gone to Jackpot Party Casino on Facebook, we have slot machines there. You play for fun. Um, I think what we're finding is that people like to have the chance to get familiar with games, whether it's Zeus or uh, you know the Planet Moolah, Invaders from. Uh, I think that with Farsight, much more so than with Zen, because Zen is doing their own thing. Um, they have licenses for some of their content, but all of their designs are original designs. So I think that with either of them, what it does is it exposes people in a casual way to pinball so that when you see a physical pinball machine, it's like, wow, I'm not intimidated by that. I just played Medieval Madness, and here it is at this location. I know exactly what to do because I've been playing it on my touch for the last six months. So I, I think that it's uh, quite beneficial. And even if it was still around Ultra Pin, which it's not. Fellow with the red shirt in the back, I didn't forget about you, unless you change your mind. <laughs> wow. These people know more stuff than I do. I'm getting off the stage. I can't answer that definitively, but suffice it to say, I think that there are plans to do just that. Uh, and not from WMS, um, but uh, yes, there is conversation, and I'm not talking about somebody redoing wizard blocks. Uh, but uh, yeah. Well, understand something. Uh, I think that the easiest approach to take is to do like a Medieval Madness or a Cactus Canyon or an Attack from Mars, something that is non-licensed. And you know, with Farsight, I know that they have a balance of what they have available. 
some of it are licensed games, and some of it are just the original games. So, was there somebody else with a hand up, or are we going back to the crew? All right, is everybody still okay? Are we running late? Long? Yes. You, it's time to go? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, yes, they're alleged. Yeah. It's kind of like the Juju stuff that I saw a couple of years back, wasn't that? Did they have a couple of old games that a couple of artists, avant-garde guys that I don't know? Right. That's cool. I mean, I have the Peter Max game at home, and you know, that's just the cabinet and stuff. But I know that some people are doing, you know, just that to, to do, you know, one of a kind. I think it's neat. You know, I, I'd like to actually take that moment and, and add something. Um, we have an Atlantis pinball machine set up out there, but we also have a, a completely stripped and gutted Atlantis pinball machine uh, as well, just in the back. And what we're going to be doing is we're taking some local artists. We're going to have a competition for local artists to re I wouldn't say rebranded, but but to to come up with new artwork for That's the awesome. pinball machine. Yeah. And uh, we're going to. Um, have it auctioned off hopefully next year if it's ready. That's cool. Uh, and then, you know, donate all the money to the charity. So I didn't know if, if that was someone like you, if you look at that as that's a good idea or is that a. I think it's a wonderful idea. The, the, uh, the pinbot that I have at home was uh, bought and signed an auction for $11,000 uh, a long time ago. Yeah. About 25 years ago. Yep. And all the money went to uh, to charity. So, yeah, love it. Cool. We doing okay? I think so. Yeah, yeah, we're doing good. I, one, one thing I wanted to ask about Roger is uh, Pinball Two Thousand. You'd mentioned Star Wars Episode One a little while back, and Pinball Two Thousand is like a this game. A game, by the way, that I really don't like. It and, John, and John knows that. <laughs> Well, it, I was I was wanting to find out or wanted to get your take on Pinball 2000 as a product. I know Williams Williams fronted fronted Pinball 2000 to try to kind of re, kind of research the industry at that time. What, what's your take on what Pinball 2000 was? Was it a was it a front show? Was it something uh, that was just there to appease the shareholders for a little bit, or did, was it doomed from the start? Um. I think that everybody internally kind of knew that the the industry had been changing. Um, you know, things were not as prosperous as they once were. Interestingly, not for video games either. Coin-op in general was kind of like slumping, and it's before that there was really this surge in redemption games, which kind of brought the industry back. Ticket spitters, uh, slots for tots, as some people tend to call that. <laughs> in a Nice one. Um, we knew that we had to change things up. Uh, you know, Pat Lawler, when he did Twilight Zone, the reason for Twilight Zone wasn't just the added space from a design standpoint. How do you obsolete tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of machines 
where the average person can't discern between a new game and an old game. They're all basically the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless you have a license where it's, it's more time-specific, but even that, the lines are blurred. Remember when we did Dirty Harry, uh, Hans Rosenzweig, who I mentioned before? Is there a new movie coming? No. It's a classic, you wanted classic things. Oh, dirty, we like Dirty Harry, but we would like it better if there was a new movie coming. It's like, sorry. You know, versus other things that you try to time as close as you can to whatever the movie release was, uh, either domestically or internationally, or if it was a TV show, Guy Roman, that was still on air when it came out. So, um, what was the question? <laughs> what was, was Pinball 2000 doomed oh, from the start? Thank you. Yeah. Um, so everybody knew we had to do some changes. John Papadouk had a couple of interesting approaches. Uh, one of them actually being with a monitor in the back glass. Um, taking nothing away, I know, to the person that actually has purchased the game. Um, the problem with the monitor in the back glass is I don't look up, I look down at my flipper. Mm -hmm. But again, when Chris is done, Keith and Ted are done, they'll give me those stop points where it can be like look up or whatever else. I mean, we do it in our slot machines. You have a top box, something's going on, real symbols, something comes up, it's not just us, it's other manufacturers. Large letters, look up with arrows. Okay, now I can go back down and look because something else is happening. Um, you know, John, did something really, I think, that was original on uh, Service Voltaire when he brought the dot down on the play field. Okay, it's there, I can see what's happening. Um, so the Pinball 2000 approach, if you will, was to try to come up with something that was going to be a game changer. Uh, something that was going to really shift the paradigm for pinball, kind of embracing a much more visual world, if you will, and I know that there have been comments made that it was video pinball, I'm sorry, it's not video pinball, there is one out there mm -hmm. that you guys can take a look at and play. It was still a mechanical device, but uh, with an interesting twist, what George Gomez and Pat Lawler wound up doing was really kind of bridging an era, and, and using that technology that had been done before. Uh, which Pat absolutely knew, as did George, so it was easy to kind of make the necessary modification. Um, it wasn't doomed to start with. In fact, and I know the Pinball Magazine, Jonathan, showed the numbers, so uh, I guess he went with more credibility to what I've always said. It was more successful than uh, we had been able to do before, either for video product or for pinball. Uh, the second game, less so. I mean, that's a whole other seminar, guys. Sorry, we won't go there today. Um, but uh, we did, what, about 7,000 of, uh, I know I never talk numbers, but I think we did a little over 7,000 uh, Revenge from Mars mm -hmm. and a little over 5,000 uh, Star Wars Episode One. And Star Wars Episode One, if it had been a better play field, it would have sold more. So I, I don't say that it was something that corporately they saw the curve going down. Oh, then the next one's going to be three, and then it's going to be back to where we are. Okay. Let's get out of business. Uh, the problem with Pinball 2000 was that it was incredibly successful, 
but not successful enough for a publicly okay. held company. Pure and simple. Uh, there was an elegance to it. For those who have ever seen, heard, talked to anybody who has ever played, touched, or known anything about Wizard Blocks and or even the follow-up Playboy that was being worked on, uh, the thought process that, oh, every game is going to have to have a center shot so that I can get to the screen. Uh, you would have been uh, amazingly surprised at what Pat was doing with his game and what Matt and Tom uh, were doing with their game. Uh, because the screen was there, but it wasn't as if there was a center shot to do something. Given a chance to evolve, uh, I think the Pinball 2000 would have really been a dramatic uh, a dramatic change for pinball. I'm not saying necessarily for the better, um, but I think that it would have been a dramatic change. It might have meant more people wanting to play the old style games without a screen. <laughs> Don't know, seriously. Yeah. Never have thought about it until this moment in time. But uh, no, I mean, it was uh, incredibly successful. And uh, you know, I think all of us still remember, at least at Williams, and maybe those who were at Pinball Expo that year in 1999, Expo ended on Sunday. George had given a seminar on Saturday, and the Tuesday, two days later, was when uh, the announcement was made exactly. official. Exactly. And uh, all of us were blindsided by it. Yeah. And the majority of the guys in pinball got to switch over and start working on slots. But anyway. Yeah. Um, all the all the games. Uh, that have been made recently have always been licensed titles. Do you think there's room Great question. for a non-licensed game? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, <coughs> understand something. I started with Williams in 1988. Um, I had approached the company in 1987 uh, with a couple of different projects. I was still living on the East Coast. I was in Connecticut. Uh, had turned down working at Williams back in 1980 for some personal reasons. Uh, came close to working at Gottlieb in 1980 and things didn't work out. Um, and one of the projects was game design. Uh, one of them was a licensed thing. Uh, I had gone to a licensing show um, and there were three things that were coming up. One was who framed Roger Rabbit. And I thought, that's not going to work as a license. Number one, it's Disney, and you know. The other was a movie called Willow, and I thought that was a little bit too much of a harder edge. And there's a third entity, which I just thought, God, this is bizarre and strange enough to actually make sense, which was called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So I approached Williams saying, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I have a game. And then the third thing was, uh, I wanted to do a consumer magazine focused on coin uh, and I wanted the first issue to be uh, put into all the games going out the door. So that's why I approached them, got contacted, um, was made an offer for a job, which surprised me. And one of the first things I wanted to mention was it would be nice to do licenses. And the response that I got back was because by the time I had started negotiations had already begun to purchase the amusement game division from Valley and Midway. And the comment from the president of the company was, look what good it did then. Because Valley obviously had fallen on some bad times. And I said, no, 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 not every game. I did do like four a, a license in the spring, in the summer, in the fall, and in the winter. 
Um, and we never went down that road, as I know Gary does, because he feels a need to do it. Although George has mentioned uh, that don't be surprised in the future to see the original theme. Uh, I, I think absolutely there's room, yes. There's room for original themes. I don't think we need a license. Uh, license, license can be viewed two different ways. One, it gives you a story arc, which is great. Hopefully it gives you some assets, which is even better, mm -hmm. so that you have a framework on what to do. A license can also be debilitating because it's a crutch. And you don't really take advantage of what maybe the, the intellectual property is of that particular license. And I think that some of us can remember back to certain games where it's like, barbed wire? Other than having Pamela Anderson in the background, what was the purpose of that? Versus, because I want to give something that I don't think was an excellent execution, it's something that I think they did fabulously well. If you take a look at what they did with Stargate, I think it's one of the best games that Gottlieb ever did at Premier. The problem was mechanically it was a nightmare. So I think that again, uh, does it have to be a license? No, that's, look, that's what I do my bread and butter on. I do licensing, you know, now. So hopefully we'll see some original themes Hope along so. with licenses and have it be a blend. Yeah. Who is your, who's your favorite designer in the business today and why? Yes. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, I mean, well, it's interesting because when you mention that, think about it. Who's out there? There's, there's, do, I, do I love Steve Ritchie's stuff? Yeah. Absolutely. Is ACDC a nice, smooth playing game? Yes. Is it a little bit funky on the bottom right? He knows that it is. <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, if I'm hitting the bell, is it a drain? Yes. The feed out of the Jets is not as nice as it should be. George has a problem with the center area as well. If you take a look at games like Transformers, which is very similar geometrically to Johnny Mnemonic, and it's like, oh my God, George. Uh, you know, I, I, John Borg, you know, John has done some, some nice stuff, and he's evolving as a designer. And I think that, uh, you know, when you ask who my favorite is, I think anybody and everybody who's doing something I mean, what Kevin Kulik and, and his cohorts have done with Predator, for those who have seen that game, uh, they've done a very nice game to start with. Uh, you know, how is it going to play when it's finally done? Don't know, but there are aspects to it that are kind of neat. Uh, you know, Pat Lawler, ingenious. Uh, it's a shame that he's not involved anymore. Uh, whatever John Trudeau is going to be doing, uh, whatever Dennis is going to be doing, uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, I think the better question is where are the future designers coming from? You know, is there a younger group of individuals that are going to pick up the gauntlet? I mean, come on, guys, let's be serious. You have a lot of old farts that are still designing. Yes. And I say that with all due uh, humor, but, uh, you know, there's not a lot of Steve Cordex yeah. left in the world that can bridge technology era by era by era, or the late Norm Clark and, and some of the others, Wayne Nines, who is still with us, um, who really were very sublime in what they did. And I think that, uh, you know, are there going to be a younger crop of individuals? You know, Greg Kamick and Jim Patla started under the arm of Ted Zale. 
at, uh, at Mallee. They were in high school, and that's how they cut their teeth. That opportunity isn't there necessarily anymore, although Gary's brought in some younger people. I know that Jack has brought in some younger people, so the hope is that we're going to see some vital new you know, blood coming in that are going to have some influences on the programming of games and the layout of games, uh, and, and we'll see how it all plays out. Cool. Thank you. Yes? You said that... Oh. No, no. Go ahead, Fee. 1988, full time. Well, when you said you didn't go to work for him in 1980, but then you did Baracora in 1982. No, I did it earlier than that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very bad story. Uh, Baracora? All right, so Steve Ritchie, just as an aside for those who have any interest, and we'll get back to the question, so I haven't forgotten it. I was in uh, the office seeing Steve's work, and he had talked to me, he showed me a little piece of wood that he had done uh, to come up with Black Knight as a double-level play field. And I thought, wow, this is kind of interesting. Nobody's really done this before. And he just asked me you know, for input and what I thought and everything else. Uh, I'll pay some homage as well to any people who have any lingering desire on video games. Uh, at the same time, uh, Eugene Jarvis showed me Defender uh, in its first working incarnation and showed me the control panel. <laughs> and my only comment to Gene, bless his heart, was I said, you know, see these fingers? This is for typing. This is for video games. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, just a, a wonder, truly, just very gifted. Um, the plan for me was I, I actually signed a contract to do three games with Williams. The plan for me was to have Baracora be done, which it was, uh, in 1978-79. And it was supposed to be the follow-up game to Black Knight. Instead of it being Jungle Lord, and instead of being the summer closeout sale along with Solar Fire in 1982. <coughs> so um, the reason I act the way that I do, and, and taking nothing away from Gary Gayton or anybody else at Valley, I know that everybody has an incredible fondness in their heart for a ball deluxe. Well, Flash Gordon came out first. Lightning, which is on the floor, came out. Everybody had to do double-level playfields. My thing was that double-level playfields are nice, but you still need a mix and a match. It's kind of what I said about licensing. License game, original game. I still feel to this day, it's a thorn in my side, I will reveal it, that if Barracord had come out when I wanted it to, it probably would have gotten uh, much more credit for being, I think, a much more deep, Basic rule set, good solid gameplay compared to the off balance of eight ball deluxe. And I know that that's sacrilegious for many people who value eight ball deluxe, but I'm just saying that, uh, yeah. So I've been around the company since 74, 75 when all things started, so there's already history there. Yes? Since you know the history of playing so many different like, pinball 
Yes. to the question. Pitball is wonderful because of the diversity of the experience and the fact that there's no right or wrong way to play unless you're in competition. You know, my sons will get on my case because I'll make a ramp over and over and over again and it's worth nothing and it's like, yeah, he just does that because he enjoys making the ramp. <laughs> um, I think it's a question of what do you want experientially? So, do you want multiple flippers? Well, and, and I'll, I'll still answer the same way. I, I think that the key ingredient for me is number one, I want visibility of the ball. All right? Um, in, in design and in layout, I think one of the key ingredients is the exit of the ball rather than just the entrance. Once I make this ramp, where does it go? Once I make this loop, where does it go? Once I hit this target, where does it go? And I'm always very sensitive to that, not only from the games that I design, but also from the input that I had uh, for the years that I was at Williams, or even more recently with Jersey Jack and you know, asking for input and my not being bashful to provide some feedback. Um, so that's first and foremost. Um, I think it's a question of what the logic is for the game. It's an open play field, but do the, the, the rules make sense? Am I going to get hosed as a player? You know, I, I joked before about the old Gottlieb games and hitting a target that you have to hit, and it's a drain. Um, you're, you're hoping that you don't hit into a blind jet bumper on a play field. I mean, that's one of like, the standard rules. You don't want to have it. There are some games that actually have that. Uh, you don't want any ball hangups in terms of what you're going for. Hidden areas. Um, but then there's twists and turns in certain games where it's like, wow, that's kind of neat. So you look at trolls popping up on a medieval madness, or you look at a trap door popping up on a theater of magic, and those are kind of like whimsical, fun stuff. So. I think it's just a question of the balance and the flow of a game. If I'm on a flipper, either flipper, does the game know where I am and where do I have to get to, or do I have to do a pass over? Do I have to do a dead flip? Or in my old days, do you make something possible because the angles aren't there, I'm going to do a backhand into this? Just because maybe I can. Um, I don't like tight shots that are necessary shots. So. You're not going to see me put up a great score on World Cup soccer because for whatever reason, trying to get into that kick-out hole is really tough for me. I can backhand a shot on Spider-Man for Doc Ock. Same basic angle, but for some reason, I don't know, just a bugaboo. So I'll make ramps on that until I'm blue in the face, where it doesn't necessarily get you the maximum points for the effort. Uh, but do I like the game? Yeah, the flow is great, the rules are great. So I think that again, in, in answering the question, all I say is that if I'm at a particular point in the game, and I've always thought of pinball, at least the modern era, as being a game of chess. For those who play chess, there's a, a beginning game, 
There's a mid game and then there's an end game. There's an objective of what I want to reach in some way, shape, or form. It's a question of how do I get to that? And the beauty of pinball necessarily is it doesn't have to be linear in a progression. I may hit some other stuff randomly and suddenly I've gotten some reward for doing that. If the programming is right, it allows you to do that. One of the things that used to gall me on the old Data East games was the fact that yes, I'd be hitting something and it's like, sorry, the Harley-Davidson motorcycle is what you have to hit. You can hit that ramp over on the right side as much as you want, but guess what? You're not getting squat. Give me a sound. Give me a point. Give me two points. I'm this, this average first-time player. I'm making this. I'm having fun. Reward me for it. Forget about the skilled player. Reward me for something. The other part, and it's always been part of my games in terms of design, when the technology allowed. Uh, I never want a pinball machine to max out. I hate that, it infuriates me. You have the best layout in the world. If the game maxes out, I'm done. So, in the design of Adam's family with Pat and Larry, all right, once I finish the mansion, what happens? Well, you get to go to another mansion. I mean, it's the same mansion. All right, but I kind of grew up at a time playing pinball where somebody's looking over your shoulder and I have to tilt out at nine, 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 eight. <laughs> because once I turn it, if that guy comes in at the wrong time, he thinks I'm a terrible player because I only have 3,000 points up. <laughs> Doesn't know that I have you know, a million three. I've been playing this for two hours now, <laughs> dude. You're just catching the tail end of it. So in Adam's family, I know that they wound up adding up the rooms. And if you look at all the games in that time frame, whether it's a vacation planner that Dennis put in to Whitewater, all of the games from Williams and Valley for the time that I was there had those extra dimensions to it because I thought it was critical. So that's some of the answer, I guess, hopefully. Any titles From what time frame, since we already talked about that? You're talking about recent games? Electromechanical. So you want me to go back to 1976, 77. Um, Try to think. Well, obviously I was influenced by Wizard when I helped design Stingray, and not knowing that I was influenced by Wizard, that wasn't something that I did with full thought. Um, I don't know. That's tough. I love Simba, Cleopatra, despite the fact that the targets are up front. Love and Joker Poker. I mean, a lot of Gottlieb games from that time frame just really resonated with me. I'm a, I'm a drop target kind of guy. Um, and I like games that have some, you know, some little fun and whimsical stuff. A lot of Harry Williams stuff. One of the games I just thought of it that I wish I had was Big Game. Yeah. Uh, I thought Harry did a brilliant job of that. You have to play Big Game where it's playing right. But you make that spin around the left, God, it's, it's orgasmic. It is just like, boom, and that spinner keeps going, it launches nice. Um, well, Flight 2000 with Harry. Harry and I talked about that. Um, and it was like, he knew he wanted to do a multi-ball game, and he asked me, how should I release the balls? And I saw the layout and everything else, and I told Harry, I said, wouldn't it be nice for once, which is another bugaboo of mine, 
and even, sorry, about Wizard of Oz. I'm hoping they're going to change it. Um, but I told Harry, because he had the space, kick him out. Send them all up to the top lane so they come down. It's like raindrops instead of back in my face. I detest, in a nice way, not being too opinionated or judgmental. Uh, you have three balls that are being released on Wizard of Oz. Okay. I told them, release the second ball once I make a switch hit in the return lane onto the left flipper. Don't cascade all of them down. I have worked so hard as an average player. I always think of it that way. I don't think of it for me. Average player gets to multi-ball. What a great experience. And more often than not, it's gone in an instant. Yes. You know, yes. the idea of an Agre Apollo agreed. 13. <laughs> agreed. Apollo 13 was just an abomination. Are you kidding me? 13 balls in your face. Hey, isn't this fun? <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, so I'm hoping that they will, you know, actually do that. It's something that they can do in the programming so that you don't have three balls all at once. And it gives you a chance, whether you make the shot or not, make a shot. Next ball, make a shot. Next ball, make a shot. And now it's all three. Hey, go crazy. So I, I think that it's things like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not the first Indiana Jones. Yes. John Borg's Indiana Jones left something to be desired. And if you look at the geometry on it, uh, it pays homage much more so to John's Frankenstein in terms of what some of the shots are and some of the angles. And a little bit of Tales from the Crib. Anyway. Yes. Um, Pride Pinbot, what a wonderful game. That is Python in some of his most elegant ways of doing things. Just the theatricality of it, mm -hmm. having her sing, yeah. uh, heartbeat, uh, giving her sight. If you really look at the game, the layout is like really in your face. Uh, there's a lot of nice reverses, so the right, to go up the right instead of going from the left flipper over, the left the same way to move around. I like games, and again, maybe it goes back to your way. I like games that give you a couple of different options in a particular area on a play field. So if you're bad, I was going for that shot anyway. I wasn't going for the ramp. I was going for the jackpot shot down over there. Yes, of course. Oh, I wasn't going for the heart. I was actually wanting to get back into the Jets. It's okay, I was just circling around, thinking of riding pinbot. Um, but uh, just just a beautiful game, and John Yowsey finishing up the artwork. Artwork's great, choreography, everything. Uh, Space Shuttle, wonderful game. Um, love the spinner. Just love that center spinner getting back up to the lanes. That works for me. Uh, targets, the ability to be able to get multi-ball the way that you can, and building up your bingo card. Yeah, nice games. Two nice games to have in the collection. No real flaws. <laughs> all right, so the drop target in front. Very tough, all right? You know, it comes back down. I go up that incline, and it comes back down. If it comes back down too hard, and depending on how the game is playing, you know it's a drain down the left. Don't want it to be a drain. 
Uh, games that feed down to the tip of a flipper are games that need to be adjusted. And you have a lot of games in terms of how the kickout holes are or whatever is being shot back at you. Think of F-14 with Yagov. Always comes to the left flipper. The minute it starts going and it gets to the center, you got to adjust that. But it's made to come to the left flipper and not for a bounce over, just pound it back. That's where you have a designer that really knows his stuff. My pleasure. Yes, sir. We I doing okay? From a background of PC gaming, and so specifically one of the things that I um, that I got really into was like you know doing like land parties and smaller competitions, which has now evolved into what people call it's electronic sports, but they call it esports. Yes. Um, so kind of talking about Papa, uh, when we have a game that is you know it's a brand new game that just got released and it doesn't meet that competition level, people modify it, and so they make like a new competition mod or pro mod, it changes the game to make it more balanced. Do you feel like there will ever be a developer, has there ever been any kind of discussion about making a pinball table that this is for competition, this is specifically for the pros at the top level? Uh, there was a company in uh, Canada, probably around 1978 or so, uh, that did uh, pro pinball is what they called it. And what they did was they modified uh, games like Power Play. There were ballet games for professional competition. I think that you make the modifications on the fly. I mean, games right now have tournament settings. Uh, you can close up or open up posts and make adjustments accordingly. You can set tilt mechanisms. And we're talking specifically about pinball. Um, Having run some of the competitions during Pinball Expo when it was our turn for Williams and Ballet, I always like Adamall games. Replay games don't really mean too much to me uh, because that's how I started in Wisconsin. It was on Adamall and New York was Adamall. The idea of hitting five inline targets in a Ballet game to get a special, okay, so what? I want you to be able to play the whole game. Um, Dr. D or Party Zone? Alright, so help me. Oh, it was Party Zone. Party Zone has Captain Bizarre, has the left ramp. Thank you. I'm getting old. Every once in a while my memory fails. <laughs> so, we set up Party Zone. Uh, at Pinball Expo, and previous years uh, there have been extra balls that people had, and the games were taking too long. There was still a part of me that said, well, okay, we set the limit on the left ramp at 100, and sure enough, people found out that it was available at 100, and that's what they were playing for, and I said, fine, screw that. I'm never doing it again, no more extra balls. So I think that, you know, if it answers your question, I think the, the ability to do some modifications uh, makes sense when it comes to tournaments, and especially on PC games or anything else. If you can go in and trigger something where there's not an unfair advantage for one player over another. I remember playing Mortal Kombat when it was in development, and early on I was very, very good at that game because it was just 
pound buttons. It's kind of like track and field. I went away on a trade show, came back, and uh, I remember playing. We, we had games we used to call it the bottom of the hall. And I was like, okay, it's like 6 o'clock. I'm going to go back and play a little bit. And some pinball and Mortal Kombat was there. There was one of the guys in the back playing. And suddenly he did some kind of sentence. Where'd the spear come from? What the hell? Oh no, this is the latest software. Everybody has now secret weapons and things. Well, screw that. I was enjoying this until like, uh, you know, now, last week I was unbeatable and now it's like you have all this stuff that you're throwing at me. So I think that, uh, again, depending on what the games are, yeah, if you can do some modifications. I think that in the old days, actually Atari did that with Gauntlet in terms of the various characters, yeah. because some of the characters had better powers and better abilities than some of the others, and I think there was a mod that they had because they were doing some competitions. I think Sega did the same thing with the first sit-down on Star Wars. Don't know if that answers the question, or... The, the, the tough part with doing that, see, it's easier for PC games, in all honesty, because you're talking about software. To take a mechanical device and build up enough of them to have some sustainability, look, uh, in, in my old naive days, about almost 40 years ago now, I envisioned going into an AMF or a Brunswick center, and instead of having 32 lanes, there would be 32 pinball machines all the same. Wow. Maybe some oiled or greased a little bit differently depending on the time of day if you are a bowler and you kind of know that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I envisioned that when, when I first thought up the whole idea of Papa uh, and, and kind of brought Steve Epstein into it along with his fellow Lionel Martinez uh, to try to advance my cause, I envisioned there being a Point efficiency per game average, PEPCA, as I called it. And the PEPCA was going to be your handicap because the games have different scoring. So if I could come up with a scoring system and that scoring system kind of equalizes out because there was no thought back then of A division, B division. I mean, we did, we did it that way. And we did juniors and all the rest of it. But I thought, wouldn't it be nice, especially because I was very much in favor of and involved in wanting to do pinball leagues. Again, bowling leagues or whatever else. And I thought, you know, if somebody had a handicap, and that's how the scoring system started. You know, seven, five, three, and one. And I kept score on probably about 30,000 games that we played for a number of years trying to perfect the balance so that there were no ties, this, that, and the other thing. 10, five, one, and zero. No, seven, five, three, and one, yeah. And I know now it's four, two, one, and zero. And there's others that are seven, five, three, and one. Seven, four, and one if it's three players. So a lot of that, I guess the root of that goes back to what I was working on just because I was crazy. <laughs> All right, uh, we're actually almost out of time, so I oh. want to ask one final question, and that is, Yes, I'm sorry for taking so long. <laughs> okay, well then, thank you. <laughs> um, are, there, are there any 
uh, future Roger Sharp books or, or, or future Roger Sharp projects that uh, might be coming? Yes. Uh, books? I doubt. I know that I've had conversations about doing Pinball 2. The problem with that is the way that I would want to do it would need me to be about 30 years younger uh, and the ability to go around the world again and take pictures instead of just reproducing brochures. Uh, and the games, in all honesty, don't exist the way that they once did. A lot of the pictures in the book are places that people have great memories of. And either because of storms or economic conditions or whatever else, those places aren't around anymore. And it's sad that they are. Um, but it would have to be done the right way. When people ask if I will reissue the first book and maybe do like a new front and whatever else, I've had some people say, don't do that because the value of my book will go down. <laughs> I always think that's very nice of people to think that way. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I've, I've talked to people about putting it on, uh, you know, online and whatever else. And we'll, we'll see, maybe, maybe at some point. If not me, um, when I'm gone, you can ask Josh and Zach, so what did you do with the eight six-foot-high file cabinets of stuff? <laughs> can you share it with the world? And see what they want to do. Uh, in terms of other projects, yeah, I'm not done yet. Cool. Yeah. Um, I mentioned before uh, the Muppets Haunted House Adventure, uh, which was a, uh, a novelty one uh, based on uh, a Mills official. Basically, the same way. Um, that was my way of trying to bring Brownlee Company into the world of pinball, not knowing that they were going to be doing a pinball machine. There were no flippers, there was a plunger, there was a three ball game, spit out tickets. Uh, but it also had uh, scoring, and I worked on that scoring to know exactly where the thresholds were for ticket amounts and everything else. Um, and uh, unfortunately, for a couple of different reasons, it didn't really hit the mark, even though we were out there for a couple of weeks and it did well before we had some mechanical problems. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a desire for me to be able to show that uh, maybe I can transcend an era or two. <laughs> <laughs> come back in the 21st century with something that might be fun. So uh, we'll see what happens. And maybe before the end of the year. Oh, sweet. Oh, did I just say that? <laughs> I didn't say which year. <laughs> All right, well, um, as on behalf of the Market Expo, uh, I, I just want to say thank you very much for taking the time to to come down here. And um, My pleasure. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you guys for, uh, I guess, putting up with this. <laughs> I know it ran a little bit long, but thank you. Enjoy it.